Hey, I'm Ryan. I've managed products at innovative companies like Weebly and Verb, and now I run my own. Each episode, I talk with product managers at some of the most successful companies in the world to learn how they do customer research, gather insights, and make the product decisions for both their customers and company. You'll get real world advice on how to ship products people want and love. Now let's get into people-driven products. Welcome, Ananya. Thanks so much for joining us today. Can you get us started by telling us a little bit about your career as a search PM and what brought you to Pandora? Hi, Ryan. Nice to meet you. And thanks for having me. For my background, I actually have an undergrad degree in computer science engineering. So I was a software engineer for a few years. And during that time, I was working for an investment bank. And I was very enamored and intrigued by that whole industry. It was peaking. This is clearly before the 2008 crash. And I wanted to be a banker. So I went to business school thinking that I'd be this hotshot banker and creating these complex credit instruments. But I realized that my interest still lay in technology. And I kind of stumbled into product management. I did a summer internship as a product management intern. And I knew that this was my path and something I wanted to chase. So as I graduated, I started looking for PM positions. Another realization that I had was to be a PM, you already had to have a PM experience. So it was really hard to break into, especially with, I had no direct experience. I was an international student. So I came to the Bay Area and I took on my first role as a project manager at Nextag which was a comparison shopping engine. And within six months after being mentored by real PMs and shadowing them, I became an official product manager. And so in my first role, I was in charge of optimizing our search results page, which was Nextag's moneymaker. People used to come to Google and uh, type in products that they wanted to buy and they'd land on Nextag with a bunch of merchant links, and then they'd tap on Amazon or Macy's or whatever, and then buy their products. So optimizing the search results page was key to our business and gave me my first taste of being a search PM and running a ton of A-B experiments. And yeah, that, that was what started the whole journey, and I've held various search and discovery roles in different businesses, doing different things, but always on the periphery of search and discovery. And my most recent role, which I'm still at, is at Pandora, where I'm the PM for search and voice. I had always been a fan of Pandora ever since I came to the US. It was the first music streaming service that I was introduced to. And I loved how personalized it was to my tastes. And I love that lean back listening experience. So it was my dream to work at Pandora. I used to live in Oakland. The office was right next to me. And finally, the stars aligned. And so here I am. It's been a wonderful journey. Awesome. And yeah, Pandora is a product we all love. And I'm sure anyone listening has at least tried Pandora. And I'm sure there's some very loyal customers listening as well. I definitely love the simplicity. I think they're one of the pioneers in the space. I know Tom, his story is a musician and tagging all the data, I thought was a really interesting founding story for someone. 
Getting into your story, though, you mentioned really your shift in interest in technology. Was there a certain moment for you where you really decided maybe as a product or maybe a story or someone that you met that really helped be that pivotal moment in your interest in becoming a product manager? Great question. So yeah, when I look back, one of the first things that I did after becoming a student in that daytime MBA program was starting to attend networking events and start talking to my classmates who'd had full-time experience in the banking industry. So I, as I went to these talks and started talking to real bankers, I realized I wasn't really jibing with my personal interests. So then consulting and banking tend to be the most sought after tracks, at least back in the day for MBA students. So I started going to different classes and focusing more on marketing and strategy to see what opportunities existed. And one of the cool, really cool courses I did was uh, Dan Ariely's Behavioral Psychology. He's a thought leader. He was a professor uh, at Fuqua at the time. And the way science is used to drive customer behavior, like that's that really resonated with me. And I started connecting dots of what examples have I seen of this in real technology? And then it all started to come together. And I was like, yes, this is what I want to do. And placing myself in the shoes of the customer and starting with customer empathy and always thinking about the end user, those things really resonated with me. And so that was, I guess, the aha moment when I realized that this is what I want to be doing. Awesome. Getting away from spreadsheets and business financials and really digging into human psychology, which is a much different side of the coin. And it's good that you found your passion professionally, which is really exciting. And fast forward to Pandora. I was doing my research and saw that you were involved with the voice mode at Pandora which congratulations, won a Webby Award for Best Branded Voice Experience. For those of us that are maybe not familiar with the product, can you help us understand how it works and what it does? So voice mode is Pandora's native voice assistant. What that means is on iOS and Android devices, when you have the Pandora app, you can use your voice to control your listening experience. It goes way beyond than, this, than just search and play. It's really Pandora's powers in music discovery. And music discovery and music streaming is so suited for this conversational use cases. Instead of typing, I want something to help me relax, but I want only flutes. It's so much easier to just say it. Say, hey, Pandora, play me something relaxing. Or, hey, Pandora, I am in the mood for some classical music. I like the song. I don't like the song. Imagine how tough that is to type, to put that in the type and swipe interface. Another key finding for music was that people were already listening to Pandora on these smart speakers. So it was integrated. The number one use case for smart speakers was music streaming. However, what Pandora's strength is, is personalized recommendations. So as you might know, as a loyal listener, we know you for so many years, we know your tastes, we have the thumbing information. So we want your listening experience to be different than maybe mine. I might lean more towards 
hip hop and rap, and you might lean more towards pop. So relaxing for you or awesome for you means different than what it is for me. And that's really what we wanted to bring to our listeners, which was not possible on connected speakers because we couldn't share our recommendation algorithms and that technology when on a Google Home or an Alexa. So the need to provide that personalized recommendation and listening experience really could only be done in app. So that's why we wanted to build this conversational, natural music assistant that really knows you. And it's like talking to a friend. We'd play you the right thing according to your taste, according to the mood or activity that you were getting into. And that's where the power, I think, of voice mode is, is that it's your little DJ friend that could live in your pockets and especially suited for hands-free contexts where you're driving or you might be cooking and you don't have the time to look at your screen or type in exactly what you want to listen to. That's fascinating. And I don't recall an app that's really vertically integrated the voice into the product because typically they rely on Siri or Alexa or Cortana or Google to really be that voice layer to connect with the app. What I'm hearing from you is that for Pandora to really have the feedback loop that it needs to strengthen the recommendation, you need to have the ability for your customers to interact directly with Pandora. Is that right? Yes. And also the kind of personalization we can deliver in app is not really possible on connected devices because that data is proprietary to us. We can't really share it. There are restrictions on the way we integrate. So really all of these delightful use cases that really unlock the power of voice can only exist within the app. Awesome. And what was your role for the voice mode launch and product offering? As the PM for voice, when I joined the company, it was really only an idea that existed on some slides. There was a lot of momentum behind bringing this to market, but for taking it from slides to an actual user-facing product was a long journey. And the first challenge I had was, what are we going to build and how is it going to be different? And so I started working backwards from, well, what might the press release look like for this? How is the product differentiated? How is it gonna drive value? What is the incentive for the user to use their voice and change really their habits and behavior shifted from type and swipe to using their voice? Because there is a concern about privacy. We're asking for mic permissions. We're asking the user to give up something in exchange for a really delightful customer experience. So really thinking about what that value was going to be for a user, in what context, how it was going to be different than anything else we were using, that's where I started from. And that really helped me identify the differentiators. So what other services could not do as well as us and still were capitalizing on Pandora's strengths of the Music Genome Project and our personalization ensembles. So working backwards from the press release and identifying differentiators, then it was a matter of socializing it 
and getting the buy-in from all of my stakeholders. For any PM to deliver a compelling product, it is teamwork. Most PMs don't have huge orgs that they are in charge of or are leading themselves. I was an individual contributor, so I was relying on influence and my relationships to get my data scientists, my engineers, my senior leadership, my designers, everyone on the same page about what we were building and why. And keeping the user at the end, that's alignment that everyone can get behind. Different roles and functions within the company can have their own purposes and their own missions, but focusing on the user is something that cuts across all of that and really helps in getting that drive to take the team, especially for something like this, where it's so new, we knew it was going to take a long time. We knew it was going to take a journey. So maintaining that momentum and drive across months and quarters and months was really what I think I brought to the table. I'm not a data scientist. I'm not an engineer. I am a product manager. I advocate for the user. And I just drive my team to deliver the best possible experience for their users. I love that focus. And I've always found the easiest way to resolve any debate internally is to keep the team focused on the user outcome. Was there a formal approval and buy-in from the executive team at Pandora? Or did you build out an MVP to really start to make some progress? I'm curious how you approach that and how you kept the users involved along the way? Great question. So in terms of buy-in, there was already encouragement from the leadership team about, yes, we have to build this. This is the technology of the future, and we have to be prepared now, invest now, so that we're set up for success. So it was not so much, should we build this or not? The main buy-in I had to get was, I was getting questions like, when are we going to launch? How long is it going to take? And I had to move away from that. So buy-in was, we're not going to be date-driven. We're going to be milestone-driven. And when we get questions like, when are we going to launch? Or how will you know it's ready? That's when the idea of writing entry and exit criteria for each phase of the product launch and having very clear go and no-go criteria for each becomes really important. So as I mentioned earlier, my press release, while it focused on a differentiator, the kind of internal focus for the team was, yes, this is going to be a delightful project, but also our response times have to be under a certain time limit. Our accuracy rates have to be 95% and above. Our fail rates have to be under this threshold. So these are very clear entry criteria for a user-facing launch. So that's kind of the top of the pyramid. To get there, what do we need to do? Oh, if we need 95% accuracy, first we need to get to like 80%. And if to get to 80%, I'm going to need 10,000 queries. So planning the product launch phase that way, to get to 10,000, I need to run an internal beta for this many days and have this many people participate. That would give me the confidence. So having these really clear go-no-go criteria for every phase 
that's what I was trying to get buy-in on. And you don't know the outcomes or you don't know how long it's going to take, whether some hypotheses might be proven wrong early on. So getting the buy-in on the framework is the most important thing. And that's how your teams and your senior leadership feels confident that, yes, we're going to deliver a quality product because I agree that these are the five go-no-go criteria I have to meet before I can expose it to real users. Awesome. And what did that look like with maybe a basic version or, or not even? I know you with voice, you can't really mock anything up. And so were you able to even get user input before development? And was that more of a conversational experience? I am a user of the product. My team is a user of the product. So even though they're not external users, that was kind of the entry criteria for the internal beta. We said our team of core users, which is going to be 20 people, is going to test the heck out of it for two weeks. And we'll all input our feedback. We'll see where how good we're feeling. And once we met that stage, let's open it up to internal employees. They're also users. So I surveyed them. I created these feedback forms where they could comment on the whole experience. So more quality focused questions to actual specific things around when you asked for something for an artist, did you get what you expected? Or did it hear you when you were in a noisy background while driving a car? Measuring each thing through user feedback, even if it's not real users, tap into your team. That's always a great approach. One of the things I wrote down was, again, that I need 10,000 queries and I need 80% accuracy on 10,000 queries. And that's what I got from my internal employees. Once we were able to meet that criteria, measured through internal feedback and internal surveys, then I could feel confident that this is ready for a larger group of people and going from more controlled environments to less controlled environments and, and keep pressure testing it along the way which is why it's great to work in a user-focused company because everyone's a user. We are all Pandora listeners. We are all very passionate about our app and our product. It didn't really feel like work. It didn't feel like we were testing it. It just felt like, yeah, we listen to music. We usually type in stuff. Now we're going to use our voices to do it. And let's see how it works. Again, keeping the focus on the customer developing ourselves to be advocates for the customer just makes the whole process flow so much smoother. Awesome. And I love that feedback loop that you've built in. And that's exactly why I started Userly, because as a product manager, I thrived on having that constant real-time feedback loop where when I made changes to the product or I can measure things, you're saying to measure the quality or the accuracy of the queries, you really have to ask people and build that in as a metric, a user metric and a perception, because that might not be a conversion metric that you can look at your analytics data and say, okay, we're now at 95% or 90%. You actually have to measure that, you know, now we're at 80, now we're at 90, now we're at 95 by building that into that product experience. And I think that's so important for products these days to have that integrated feedback loop around all the key moments. And it sounds like that was really a driver as you expanded this within the Pandora company as really your initial beta group. If you're not having the feedback at every stage, then then you're missing out. Another thing with analytics is that you need volume. And 
we have millions of MAUs, but we knew that the quality right at the start was not going to be good enough to put in front of, front of real users. So the A-B testing, even though we have very robust A-B testing systems, they rely on the volume of data, which we're not going to have in the beginning. So qualitative data was super important. That feedback early on in the form of feedback uh, surveys was really important. The other thing is the analytics give you a snapshot of aggregates and you have to do a lot of work to dive down into one use case for one user to see what went wrong or right. So that kind of A-B testing is sometimes not even possible to do, especially when you're building something brand new and you don't know how well it's gonna do. So having that feedback early on in the product in the form of surveys is, is very important. Yeah, and imagine your career as well in the search space. You also have to measure user perception because Google's metric cannot always be clicking to the page. In many cases, perhaps that was the wrong result, or, or maybe it was a result that you thought it was the right result, but you clicked in and it was the wrong result. And so I've seen a lot of scenarios and interactions and funnels where it might be directionally helpful on the analytics data, but you the key area and the key metric really has to come from the users to say, yes, this is correct. I think Uber is a great example. You know, if you have a terrible ride, but you still get there, that's not going to show up with analytics data. And so I, it sounds like you definitely have that experience of building that in and really using that to drive your products forward, which is great. And, and you and I definitely have a lot in common. <laughs> I'll say that because <laughs> that's exactly how I build products. When did you start to bring in external users? Was that during the beta or did you start to do a small rollout with the broader uh, Pandora user base? Yeah, that was always the big question. And, and we knew right from the beginning that even to expose it to a very small user base, we wanted to make an announcement. We wanted to do a press release. We didn't want users to discover this feature by accident and create their own story about it. We want to tell our own story. And so the plan was always to roll out to a small user base and then have a learning plan built around it. And again, have a set of go-no-go no go criteria to say, okay, we've been at this percentage of exposure for a while now. We met up a go-no-go no go criteria and so we can expose it to a larger group. So the quality bar, even for that, very small percentage of users was very high. So I started with, like I said, first our team using it, then our internal employees using it, and then writing a really good, robust FAQ for our senior leaders to say, why do we feel like we're ready for launch? And that went into questions like, how are we doing on our accuracy metrics. And here's all the data that we gathered from our internal beta to say, okay, we're good here, check. Let's move on to the next one. Again, I said, at launch, we were going to have these differentiators that really highlighted the personalization the power of Pandora. And personalization is again, kind of a subjective thing that we couldn't measure in aggregate in that internal beta because yeah, you know, there are fewer number of users. So I had that survey, I had people rated from one to five across competitors, Apple Music, Spotify, Amazon, 
people who had access to all of these services and say, okay, how do how does Pandora's personalization compare to these other ones? So there was very strong measurement for each aspect of the product to ensure that we were meeting that high bar of quality. And all of that data was gathered together, put into a really nice document and shared widely within the org to say, okay, now pick it apart. If you have any questions, if you have any doubts, if you want to know how we feel confident that we are better than our competitors in this, ask the questions, comment on it, reach out to me directly. I'm the point person here to answer all of the questions. And that's what really gave us the confidence that yes, this is ready to even expose to a small percentage of our users. And once we got there, then it was a matter of, okay, now I wanna keep it at this exposure and keep learning and keep learning. And whenever we feel like we've checked all of these go criteria, launch it to a bigger population. And we had learnings at every phase, like in the internal beta, all the users testing it were Pandora employees who know the product really well, who are testing it in controlled environments, who are naturally power users. So there weren't that many failures. And we absolutely hit our benchmarks for accuracy. But when we rolled it out to the real users, it took a hit because suddenly we were getting a lot more accents. We were hearing children's voices that our model was not trained on. People were singing to it. So all kinds of use cases that we really would not have uncovered internally. So it was important that we anticipated this beforehand and built it into a rollout plan so that we're gonna get some unexpected use cases, a model T needs time to train and learn and improve. So we're gonna keep it at a low exposure. So it was a gradual rollout but even for that gradual rollout, we made sure to get that press release, gotten some reporters to test it out themselves, made sure to get the testimonials for them to create that hype and that buzz around it to get more and more users to use it. Yeah, that's so interesting that when you brought it to more of a, a GA to the broader user base, it was a setback because of all the unexpected edge cases. It's really edge cases of the singing and the kids and and where internally everyone knows, you know, it's quiet, they're in a quiet place, they're speaking clearly. And so I can totally see how you know, it'd be more challenging once you go beyond that inner group of, of individuals. Did you make any adjustments on the, along the way based on maybe team feedback or user feedback or analytics data that adjusted the final product that you shipped compared to what you initially started with? Yeah, so an example is, again, we, we envision this product to be really used in hands-free context. That's where the magic of it lay. You just say, hey, Pandora, play me something relaxing. And once you're 30 seconds in, you say, pump up the volume. Another 20 seconds, you say, oh, I don't like this. Play me something different. So very conversational and natural. The wake word was really important to the whole experience. You wanted people to realize that they could just talk to it without even tapping a button. So on the onboarding flow, I built in like three steps. So the first step would be, what does this product do? Second step was, you can say, hey, Pandora. And only on the third step, 
would they tap on the mic and say accept and make their first user query? So I thought this was a great flow that educates the user, calls out the value proposition of this product, and really sets them up for success once they go down into the funnel to make their first successful voice query. This was backed up by user research as well, that this is what people wanted. And when I tested it internally, it tested well. However, in reality, it turns out that because there were so many steps in the funnel, well, not that many, three steps, the overall conversion was not where I expected it to be. A lot of people would tap on it, and then at the last minute, while making a successful query and granting mic permissions, there was a huge drop-off. And I had a tough decision in front of me. I was like, should I revisit this funnel? What can I give up? Because my primary goal at that point was to get as many people to use it as possible because we needed the volume of training data. We wanted more and more usage so we could improve the product. So I decided to take away one step from the funnel. I thought that getting people to say, hey, Pandora, and then using it was perhaps not as important as getting people to just say, play Drake. So I did away with that education step, one step in the funnel. I kind of added it at the end to say, next time, just say, hey, Pandora, to ask for something. So it got rid of a funnel, but possibly scaled back on the education piece. The final outcome was that we did get more people through the funnel, more people granting my permissions, and more people using it. However, the percentage of users using the wake phrase instead of just tapping the mic was maybe not as good as I expected. But that's a trade-off that I had to make and say, okay, later on, I will revisit this and see if there's a better opportunity to educate users in the context. But this is the kind of prioritization and tough decisions sometimes you have to make. And having clear goals in, right from the beginning just makes those decisions a little bit easier, a little bit easier to defend and uh, socialize within the org as well. Yeah, that's interesting. And onboarding flows, often adding educational steps improves the end activation rate. That was my hypothesis. But yeah, sometimes sometimes that's not what you see in practice. So that was interesting for sure. Yeah, it sounds like you're focused on the goal. You knew what that was. Maybe put aside best practices to figure out how to get there. And so can totally see how that would end up working out. And how about post-launch? So 100% availability. Was there any user insight that maybe made some adjustments to the product or some iterations that came along the way? So one of the post-launch things that we did was the primary use case that we had anticipated was going to be search and play. So play me a song, play me an artist, play me an album. These are not very difficult requests to understand, and that's what people tend to use the most. So our primary use case was doing really well. However, again, for repeat usage and engagement, I think the incentive for people to use their voice has to be a little more. And so we had hypothesized that if we can make better recommendations for ambiguous or open-ended queries, that's where we'll get people really hooked on this and have them coming back and using it. So that's something we had 
kind of differed from the compelling V1 and said, okay, this is something I want to revisit and see if we can improve here. The other thing that we had made a conscious decision to kind of revisit was handling failure cases. So people using other voice assistants like Siri or Google, they can do a lot more than just play music. They understand everything. They will understand your request for directions and what the weather is and where the nearest Starbucks is. So we did anticipate some people asking these questions for a music assistant as well. And I didn't want to create a disappointing experience for those use cases. At that point, I had the, again, the decision to either really build robust failure cases and more helpful educational messages or go deep into music. So these were things that we started seeing more of post-launch and search and play use cases doing really well, but more of these failure ones where network drops or like we lose the connection and we capture only partial audio. These were things that really became important post-launch. Once we had the usage and the volume, these are the polishes that we focused on to make it a really well-rounded user experience. So even if we fail to service your music request, we tell you why we failed and to point the user in a helpful direction of what to try next. So there's a lot of research still going on in this area. We're playing around with things like if they make the same request three times, is that failure? Should we recommend something else or try to pick something else? But a lot of experiment that still needs to be done. And it's going to take some take a while to make it really, really smooth. But these are all learnings we anticipated to get post-launch. And we're working on really, really making it a delightful experience, even for non-music use cases. Awesome. And like any great product, it's never done. There's always more to do. Iterating and refining existing products is my favorite way to invest team resources, continue to push and continue to improve and have a smaller set of features that work really well. And I imagine that voice is going to be critical for Pandora's future potential into the car. You think around all the different interfaces going forward. They say home is really the new frontier of technology. And so I'm sure that this could be potentially the primary UI for Pandora customers and potentially increasingly in the future, knowing that in many ways, we're finding ways to connect with our devices. We're not looking at a screen. I mean, I'd like to say voice is not the future. Voice is now. And if there's any doubt, see the little kids using smart. I have multiple smart speakers that I keep at home because of competitive analysis. And I have Pandora and I have a four-year-old son who doesn't know how to type, but he knows how to request music and how to ask for the weather. And this is just going to be the norm. Yeah, totally agree. And did you ever do any in-person user tests or interviews over Zoom? Or was it purely through the product itself where you're collecting that feedback loop with a homegrown microsurvey solution? No. So in that limited launch phase, once we did do a user-facing launch, a very small percentage, I had my UX research researcher plan out a whole proposal for what feedback we would get. So we identified a set of users, we did diary studies with them, and we try to get feedback on each 
aspect of the feature. So the onboarding experience, the education, the repeat use, what context they were using it for, uncovering new opportunities for which direction we should take the product in. So I had my UX researcher run these interviews and we'd sit on them, watch the recordings. In cases where it, wouldn't, it was needed, we'd really go and hone in on what that particular user was trying to do, why they were satisfied or not. And it really brought a lot of great insights to life. I think it's super important for PMs to watch real users interact with their product and not just internal employees, but the average person who is not an expert in using it. There are just some things that I, I would not have appreciated at all as a PM because I just never tend to look there. So I didn't directly interview my users, but I had my UX researcher running these interviews and I sat in on some of them and we did a bunch of usability testing and real user feedback. Taking a step out a little bit, I'd love to dig into, you know, just some broader product management topics. And, you know, when I was doing my research, I saw a tweet from you in 2019. And it said that as a product manager, you need to get comfortable making tough decisions. Can you share a few examples of what that looks like for you at Pandora? As a product manager, I think it's all about ruthless prioritization. There is a tendency for us to think about building all of the cool things, but resources are finite and you have to maintain sharp focus so that you set up your customer for success, you set up for your team for success, you set yourself up for success. And the way to do that is just getting really comfortable with making hard decisions. And for me on a day-to-day -day basis, those hard decisions tend to be prioritization decisions about what I'm gonna build now versus what I'm going to defer and build in the future. So like my onboarding funnel example was one where I had to make that tough decision to say, okay, I'm going to defer education for the benefit of getting more people through the funnel. Another feature that I had to make a tough decision on was this idea of a dynamic playlist. So Pandora is known for its music genome project. So a powerful usage of this knowledge that we have is requesting music by attribute rather than by name. So as I mentioned, you might ask for 90s music with female vocals. Now that's not something people tend to type and ask for because that's a behavior, that's a learned behavior, that's not typically how we search. But it's so well suited for a voice interface because that's how we talked amongst each other. And that's how I would go to a record store and ask an expert for like, recommend me some music that's from the 90s that has got like, drums and guitar. So why not build that thing into our assistant? And that was a really cool feature that we wanted to build a lot of momentum behind. Our science team was really excited to build it. However, I realized as a PM that this was going to be complex to build. One of the primary reasons was that the way our music is attributed is very academic more for music experts than for the layperson. So syncopated beats and so on and so forth. That's not how people ask for music. So we had to create like user-facing terms for all of these 
really technical terms for music. That was the first challenge. The second challenge was playlisting is still a feature that's available to our premium users and our free users can access it, but it's after a, a reward. So once they listen to an ad or watch an ad, then they can access the playlisting feature. So it, there wasn't a clear way to make this dynamic playlisting feature available to our free users. And so we wanted to build it. I knew from social media channels, from our customer service channels that people were asking for this, but the path to it was more complex than we would have liked it to be. So it would have made for an amazing press release. There would have been nobody else, I think does it even now, but I knew that the quality had to be super high. It had to be working accurately for any kinds of requests. There were a lot of, it had to be available to our free users. So the path to get there was a little more complex. And so made the tough decision to defer it and spend time on it and figure out the right way to build it and test the quality and launch it at a future date than just putting it right at the beginning. And it would have worked, but for a smaller percentage of users and for a smaller percentage of use cases, and I wouldn't have felt comfortable signing off on it. So a tough decision. And I, I guess I disappointed a lot of my internal team and my team members, but everyone got it. Everyone understood why we had to defer it. So I think for PMs, yeah, just choosing what to build now versus deferring something for further down the roadmap, those are hard decisions because uh, it hurts sometimes, but that's what you have to do for your customer. Absolutely. And a lot of people don't realize that being a product manager at a company at a scale of Pandora is much different than a small audience, because if it's a small audience, the long tail of edge cases is very small, you know, and you can use technologies and techniques that would break with a user base with millions and millions of people. And so I do think that a product manager at a company with a very large user base becomes significantly more, you have to adapt much quicker on the prioritization because there are a much smaller subset of features that would actually work at the scale and solve all of the long tail use cases. And I think when people look at self-driving cars, for an example, Everyone's wondering why I can't sit in the back of my car and it drives me to Lake Tahoe. Well, when you think around broad scale technology and all the edge cases of self-driving cars, you start to realize all those edge cases and the weather and the temperature and the dynamics of the car and the traffic that day and the bear running across the road and everything that might happen. That's actually a really difficult problem. This sounds like a similar one of there's just too many edge cases. It's too long of a tail. We're going to maybe hold off on this and really focus where we know we can deliver that award-winning experience, which as we covered, you did win a Webby Award. And so again, congratulations on that. We have time for one last question. And so I wanted to wrap up here with what's your top piece of advice for other product managers who want to create products people love? I would say really get comfortable with making hard decisions and trusting your gut. We would all love to have all of the information at all times to make the most informed decision, but time is a luxury. Sometimes we sacrifice 
a path of action because we get stuck in analysis paralysis. So pick a direction, trust your gut, pick a direction, set a hypothesis and then pressure test it. See what that looks like versus not doing anything. And know that no matter how much you plan and anticipate the future, you might still get curveballs. Some of that might not be in your control at all. And you have a second to make a decision. Keep your customer always in focus. Think about whether it's possible to change directions later down the line and what that cost might be. But trust your gut. In most cases, it's better to pick a course of action and go down that path, figure out the risks, than not doing anything at all or waiting a long time to make a decision because it might get too late. That bias for action. I love how you think and moving things forward and not letting things get stuck is absolutely true. And one of the key aspects of being a product manager is progress. And we don't want to be idling because our customers aren't really going to receive that value if we're just idling and, and debating and discussing. And Exactly. Take the risk, be bold, and act. Awesome. Ananya, so glad to have you on today. Thanks for joining us. And it was really, really great to hear your story. And I'm excited for everyone else to hear it as well. Thanks so much for having me. Really great talking to you, Ryan. Thanks for listening. If you'd like to request a guest or ask a question, email me at ryan at userleap.com. And if you need a tool that helps you get customer insights easier, faster, and more accurately, check out UserLeap. After my time managing products at other companies, I wanted a simpler way to do customer research, obtain insights, and use those insights to make the right product decisions. That's why I founded UserLeap. Our microsurveys help you get in-depth user insights in real time, understand the why behind your data, and ultimately ship the right thing for your customers. Usually is used by product managers at companies like Square, Adobe, and Dropbox, and it's super simple to get started. Try it free or learn more at userleap.com.